Hello and welcome to Interpreting India. Geopolitical realignments, sustainable growth, healthcare financing, inclusive digital transformations, climate change, supply chain disruptions, urbanization and several other critical global matters envelop the world as India's G20 presidency comes to a close. We at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. I'm your host, Shayud Roy, and this time we are talking about the present and future of the energy sector in India. India has seen superlative progress in electrical connectivity, achieving 96.7% connectivity to the grid in 2020, up from around 67% about a decade ago. Despite recent progress, electrical connectivity is still racked by problems such as irregular supply and voltage fluctuations and distribution companies face losses 72.5% of electricity generated is derived from coal which serves to impede our climate goals and renewable alternatives require energy storage mechanisms that are technologically complex and depend on locally unavailable raw materials for the discussion going forward it helps to know that the electricity sector can be broadly split between generation transmission and distribution To talk about these issues we are joined today by Mr Karthik Ganeshan of the Council on Energy Environment and Water. Mr Ganeshan is a fellow and director research coordination at the council where he ensures cross team coherence for CEW's research direction and imperatives. He also acts as an internal advisor across research teams and creates institutional platforms that spur innovation. In addition he holds a master's degree in public policy from the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy at the National University of Singapore and an undergraduate degree in civil engineering and an MTech in infrastructure engineering from IIT Madras. Mr. Ganeshan, welcome to Interpreting India. Thanks to you for having me on. It's really exciting for the conversation we're going to have. Uh so I was wondering if we could discuss uh, some of CEW's reports that you have co-authored and I'd like to start with uh, a particular paper that discusses the state of electricity connections in India and uh, if we could perhaps start with some of the reasons why some households still do not have an electricity connection So Shayud you know uh, this conversation on you know electricity connections is kind of passé in the sense that you know with the rollout of the DDUJY which is the Dindayal Upadhyay Gram Jyoti Yojana and the subsequent Saubhagya Yojana which uh, basically shifted focus from uh, village electrification to household electrification there there is an implicit understanding that we have near universal connections today right so when you do ask me the question about you know why some households don't have it we are talking about a very small fraction possibly you know less than 2% if i may hazard a guess because you know it's really you know it's uncertain at this point in time but unfortunately 2% even in the context of a country like india is a sizable number of households right and the primary reason for many of them to not have a connection today is really that the cost of extending the grid to some of these areas is uh, exorbitant uh, it's a public responsibility because you know obviously in such areas the private sector does not see a benefit of rolling out services which is why i think we also need to embrace the alternatives of how else can we electrify some of these you know hard uh, spaces to reach uh, whether it's a remote village in the northeast whether it's in the hilly areas whether it's in areas which are you know frequently inundated you know by floods or waters right 
possibly somewhere in the Sundarbans. Let's imagine, right? You know, there are uh, tens of thousands of households, you know, which are of course on those islands, and you know, and where uh, they're constantly subjected to water. So, given all of this, I would say, you know, it's in that margin, and we're constantly sort of, you know, um, innovating to try and figure out, you know, how can we do uh, distributed, you know, renewable energy based provision, right? So you can either have a micro grid or a mini grid in some of these areas, which is self sustaining. But again, you know, uh, while the government is happy to invest the capital, uh, the maintenance of some of these systems does require a bit of training to the local individuals to be able to sort of ensure that the appropriate care is given. It's not like, you know, these are free of any maintenance. Most centralized systems require maintenance, but the utility that you and I are connected to does that on our behalf. Whereas if you had your own solar PV system, you'd obviously have to, you know, then try and, you know, whether it's the cleaning of the panels, whether it's ensuring that, you know, you are properly maintaining the battery system that's actually used to provide electricity outside of the hours when sun is shining, all of this needs to be taken care of, which means that there is a bit of a skilling requirement. And all of this is fantastic in the sense that we are not, we are building more resilience into the system because it doesn't rely on this one large grid. And if it were to go down, right, there is going to be, you know, local uh, disruptions. If you are able to sort of generate electricity where you are, that's utopian. So in some sense, it's a great system, but I think a lot of people who, uh, you know, who see that the grid works really well for them, especially when they look at a city, when you look at, you know, bigger towns, you know, and uh, uh, bigger panchayats, they're like, I also want that, right? Why should I settle for a smaller system, which may not give me the capacity to run an air conditioner, you know, in the, in the future, they may not have the means today, but everybody has aspirations. So I would say the ones who are not connected today, is because, you know, the government has not been able to reach there. And I think alternative solutions are proving to be slightly expensive. So people are making do, right? There may be a DG set or there may be something else in the vicinity. But uh, the hope is that, you know, we will have universal electrification, even if it's not through the grid, you know, immunity, right? If it's not already been achieved, as I said. Yeah? I hope that was kind of helpful. But historically, if you look at it, right, I would say it was... The fact that the utility was just averse to extending connections because extending a connection to a new household basically meant more scope for losses. And I think you know we'll discuss more about utility losses, etc. later on. But that was really the big barrier. So connectivity is not a problem, clearly. Uh, most households are connected. So let's talk about the state of the supply and the quality of service that these households are receiving. Uh, so uh, the households uh, have seen, several households have seen uh, blackouts, uh, low voltage uh, and other issues. Uh, could could we talk a little bit about some of the common problems that they seem to be facing? Yeah, I mean, as you, as you already said, right, I mean, sitting even in a, you know, both of us are in Delhi right now, you know, and Delhi is famed for its uh, highly reliable power supply, as is possibly, you know, metropolitan area like Mumbai. But you leave uh, these two enclaves, right, which have a private utility that supplies to them. And you move to even, uh, you know, um, another big metro like a Chennai or a Bangalore or a Kolkata. You will find that outages are uh, the norm. Uh, you know, not least because, you know, they're maintained by public utilities. But really because uh, there are multiple obligations that a utility has. And unfortunately, because of these multiple obligations, which is to serve a very diverse consumer base, right? In Mumbai and in Delhi, the consumer base is largely residential, commercial, and to some extent, you know, light industry and light manufacturing. There isn't an agricultural consumer to speak of, right? These are fully metered, you know, uh, there's a clear value proposition to the consumers here for the electricity they consume. They can be charged, you know, to recover the cost of electricity that they're being provided, right? 
and all of that happens very you know uh, efficiently and the private sector obviously you know has the has the incentive to go ahead and you know get the money out of the consumers whereas when you move to other areas what's really happening is that you have to contend with this mix of uh, consumers that you have and as a result the utility is really chasing different actors you know to pay up uh, you know has having to contend with the political promises to you know provide free electricity to one uh, constituency whether it's the farmers at some point in the day or whether it's subsidized electricity to some you know specific industries or for that matter subsidized electricity to a lot of residential households and uh, from whom recovery is also tough so all of this basically means that the utility um in many cases even in large towns right where you would see that the value for continuous electricity is there because as it is evidenced by people's uh, uh, the presence of alternatives for instance somebody has a dg set right on their rooftop where the cost of electricity could be anywhere north of 15 rupees a kilowatt hour right clearly means that they'd be willing to pay the utility it's just that the utility just doesn't understand that you know um, there is a value to lost load and they'd rather you know lose that value economically and for themselves right uh, in pursuit of whatever political goals that they have or whatever you know that they have they have to cater to and you know just carry out outages in many cities so basically the main issue is of course of frequent sort of you know outages you know they may not be long lasting but that's again been a facet of electricity supply in india for many decades now you know um, which is you know you'll have an outage for 15 minutes which means in those 15 minutes you either got to make do with alternatives or just you know be in the dark or in some cases in urban households you have you know inverters right which kind of cater to that 15 half an hour window but then as you move out uh to you know notified town areas and panchayats and rural areas you will find that the outages uh, range in you know in 30 minutes to an hour and in you know, multiple such outages which could take the you know outages from supply to anywhere up to you know 3 hours 3 and a half hours right it is drastically come down it has drastically come down because it has been mandated that supply needs to be kept and increasingly consumers are finding value but uh, what we are seeing is that the amount of money that utilities are losing over time is not necessarily going down fast enough i mean it's not increasing at the pace at which it was increasing through the non uh, through the 2010s but it's not going down fast enough uh, tariffs still are not cost reflective one can argue whether the cost of supply is high but it's mainly outages but the other underlying one which we've uh, highlighted in some of our studies which you know which also came to light i remember when i was discussing this with some people who are citizen scientists was the really poor quality of voltage uh, supply in many parts of uh, rural and uh, second tier towns and what we don't realize is this has implications for our ability to use you know critical appliances it has implications for uh, you know losses that the utility incurs in the supply of electricity because of you know just the way you're supplying and uh, it has implications for life of appliances you know the cost that you incur and all of these unfortunately are not factored in you know and that's where i think uh, the system needs to sort of really think about what will continuous reliable supply to every citizen in india what will that mean in terms of economic value i mean an assessment can be done but i think we just need to take it as gospel truth that it is indeed something that will you know uh, be uh, in some sense you know nirvana in some way yeah for the economy so in fact you just covered uh, quite a few points uh, that i'm sure that i i think will come up later so for example the issue of irregular billing and the fact that much of uh, the electricity uh, Uh, much of the problems have to do with uh, the way tariffs are structured and uh, particularly in connection with the agricultural sector 
but uh, and and then also the low voltage issue. So if I start with the context that uh, DISCOM's responsibilities are to ensure uh, quality of supply, uh, metering and billing, with that context in mind, uh, can we first talk about the problems facing these distribution companies themselves, particularly from the financial side. And then we can maybe break down some of how that affects all the other things, the irregular billing, uh, agriculture, uh, the uh, nexus with the agricultural sector and uh, low voltage issues. Sure. So, you know, um, again, you know, the problem of uh, you know, the malaise and the utilities when it comes to their uh, the finances is well documented, has been researched, and I think you know even uh, people who are not in the sector seem to be aware of uh, what is running through. And to give a context, you know, we'll, the Indian utilities have been losing money to the tune of about you know ten billion dollars a year on average for the last you know at least four or five years, right? Which means that you are not able to recover that money from your consumer. Uh, if you're not able to recover money, what do you do to operate next year? You take a loan, right? You take a loan to basically make good, uh, you know, whatever working capital requirements you need. And that loan needs to be paid back because, you know, effectively, uh, that's that's the only way somebody is going to give you money. Uh, in some cases, you do have bailouts, which we've seen in the past. Uh, we had uh, the most recent round of bailouts, you know, uh, under the Uday scheme starting 2016, which ran for about, you know, four to five years. And then now we have the RDSS scheme, right? The revamped distribution sector scheme, which again, you know, comes with a whole host of conditions on, you know, how such bailouts will be affected. Uh, it's less of a bailout now. It's more of an incentive uh, for distribution companies to take up some far-reaching reform, right? So, uh, so the money, as I said, that they lose um, is primarily on account of... Um, there is, of course, you know, that uh, non-cost reflective tariff, which is, you know, constantly brought up, which is that you're having to procure electricity at exorbitant rates and uh, you're not able to sort of apply tariffs to consumers across the board uh, on average. That helps you recover. Now, in theory, the tariffs are set in a way that the discount breaks even because you're not meant to make profits. But in practice, what ends up happening is that, you know, um, you're calculations go for a toss because there's a large base of consumers who actually don't, you don't recover anything from. And that number could be, you know, anywhere from, uh, you know, 30% to, you know, 15, I mean, 30, 35%. In fact, in some parts of the country, those losses could be anywhere north of even 40%, right? In some of the smaller jurisdictions, for instance, in Jammu and Kashmir, right? Or in one of the Northeastern states, the losses are staggering. But that said, in, in large states, for instance, like Tamil Nadu or in, Rajasthan or in Uttar Pradesh, you could have numbers which are, uh, you know, north of 20%, which are also not, uh, you know, uh, very, uh, suggest that there are the, the rot runs deep. And this is primarily because uh, the, uh, the, the, the government of the day makes promises to people saying, you know, well, I will supply electricity at a certain price. The expectation is, and I think the legislation, uh, the, the act also now mandates that any such subsidies that are given, I mean, notifications under the act, Subsidies that are being uh, uh, that are being uh, given must be paid in full to the discom upfront. But the problem is that you know um, the distribution company is an extended arm of the government, so they use it as a bank. They don't necessarily pay up that subsidy money to the utility. Uh, it of course the it has improved over time, but it's still not gotten to a point where the utility is fully able to rely on uh, the state government of the day 
to make good its promises. And in addition, you've got, uh, you know, uh, poor accountability on the DISCOM. In a sense, you know, there is, there is lack of transparency in the way these DISCOMs report uh, their, uh, you know, their, their financials. You know, there is a famous, you know, um, among, among at least the policy groups, you know, we talk about how there are different balance sheets that they have for different uh, stakeholders. One for the regulator, one for the financier, one for the state government, and one possibly for even for the central government. So one never really knows what the state of finances is. And uh, for this reason, you know, it, it becomes very difficult for us to really apportion blame, so to say, to any particular sector. So a lot of people go after agriculture and say that, you know, the supply to agriculture is coming at a, at a very high cost because you're not able to recover money because in many cases, you know, it is free of cost supply or, it, you know, it's, it's greatly subsidized. And what happens is the distribution company to mask its own operational inefficiencies ends up booking a lot of supply against agriculture and says, I've supplied so many million units of electricity to them. And, you know, all of this is basically has to be, you know, made, made good to me. But the state government, you know, obviously is not prepared to make good all of that. But the, the double, cha- double whammy is that you're not actually able to measure what is the amount of electricity that's been supplied to those entities because you don't have meters in agriculture in many, many jurisdictions. Uh, because agricultural consumers, you know, after, you know, uh, uh, you know, this practice started possibly in the state of Andhra Pradesh, you know, at the time of one of the, you know, uh, leaders. And uh, subsequently, you know, it's kind of uh, spread through like a wildfire to many states where barely any agricultural consumption gets metered, barring in pockets where there have been experiments or there are, you know, really good incentives in place. It really doesn't happen. So you blame agriculture at times. Sometimes you blame uh, theft of electricity and, you know, in uh, rural areas and in, you know, peri-urban areas from by consumers, specifically for instance, in states like Uttar Pradesh. So because of all of this, uh, it's become a bit of a challenge to, uh, you know, as I said, talk about who specifically to blame. But by and large, you know, it is the blame is on uh, poorer consumers and uh, um, who don't end up paying or on agriculture across the states. And that's really where, you know, I want to leave it at. But, you know, so maybe, you know, you want to sort of stop here and take stock of, you know, what you've heard and what you we want you to kind of get into more details on. Uh, in fact, uh, I think uh, this is just the right point to mention, and I'm reading this out here. So in 2019 to 2020, 21% of the total electricity supply was sold to agricultural consumers. And their share in the total revenue collected was only 2%. And uh, this is basically so, uh, as I think your work also mentions, there is a cross-subsidization happening. So the industrial consumers basically are uh, are subsidizing the agriculture consumers in a way. The industrial consumers contributed about 34% of the total revenue, whereas their share in the electricity sale was 28%. So... uh, and this uh, seems to uh, uh, there isn't there doesn't seem to be an easy way out of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, which is exactly as I said, which is one of the reasons why you know utilities in urban areas like uh, you know uh, like urban areas of you know of Delhi and uh, Mumbai, right, don't really have a challenge. But uh, you know, you've got utilities everywhere else where there's active farming and agriculture. You have a big problem. For instance, even in the state of Gujarat which is one of the better performing discounts. In fact, I would say there's a vast divide between Gujarat and many other states of the country. It's primarily because they have such a large industrial consumer base and they have a very small residential consumer base and they don't actually have such a large uh, exposure to agriculture and they've managed to kind of also keep their agricultural 
you know, consumption, uh, you know, uh, reasonably in check in terms of how much goes out, you know, there's extensive meeting, at least at the high level to ensure that, you know, that there isn't this overbooking of uh, uh, supply to agriculture itself. So clearly the problem lies in it. And I think, you know, uh, and I remember one of the statistics that I was, you know, looking at when we were part of an effort was, won't believe it, 20% of all electricity that is supplied globally to agriculture, globally, is in India. It's a staggering statistic, right? It's a staggering statistic, which tells you that it's either super inefficient or it's it's just incredulous, meaning that this number has been fudged, right? Uh, it is more likely the latter, primarily because the accounting is so poor and you're basically using assumptions at the, at the best. For instance, you assume that there have been so many hours of supply, you know, and, uh, you know, and so many consumers with so many, you know, kilowatts worth of pumps connected. So as a result, the uh, these uh, you know the consumption would have been so many units. You've actually not metered it. So given the number of assumptions and the layers of you know uh, op- opaqueness that are there, it's very difficult to say whether that number is indeed true. Um, and I think there are, of course, uh, you know we can of course also talk about what is being done. And I think one of the key things that is being done right now, uh, Shayut, to address this is trying to figure out how do we delink supply to electric of electricity to agricultural consumers. From the grid itself, meaning um, the state of Maharashtra, for instance, you know, under the chief minister's scheme, has come up with a very innovative um, proposal to supply electricity from solar feeders to agricultural consumers, which means that they will get power from what are normally called, uh, you know, um, feeders that are supplied by uh, solar electricity, which means that it's active during the day which is when the farmer also possibly wants to carry out his activities, right? There have been many schemes in the past where they've said, you know, nighttime, our demand is low, so we'll supply during the night. So farmers had to, you know, wake up in the middle of the night and you know, switch on their pumps. And, you know, there were incidents of, you know, farmers getting bitten by snakes in their field because they were going out in the dark. So all kinds of unintended consequences were there. But nevertheless, a lot of states persisted because, you know, it was really the one way out wherein, you know, you could give some sort of certainty to supply because during the day, the rest of the economy is asking for power. Industries, commercial establishments, hospitals, houses, right? And farmers were the ones who were basically made to sort of, you know, run around for their power, you know, thoda sa, you know take, get some in the evening. But uh, now with the prospect of solar energy and solar feeders, there is the possibility that uh, farmers can get, you know, reasonably reliable electricity uh, during the those eight hours when the sun is shining. And this also then means that once you put in that upfront cost of setting up that system, well, you know, recovery is less of a challenge. You know, of course, you would still want to recover because that upfront money also has a cost to it, right? It's not free. But at least, you know, you're not hemorrhaging money on a yearly basis because, you know, each unit of electricity that you procure otherwise from a power plant comes at a, you know, at an exorbitant rate of, you know, five rupees or six rupees, right? All all included. And that means that the utility is constantly running after, you know, uh, banks to support you know these losses but now because you know renewable energy is you know as the as our power minister constantly says you know is deflationary in the sense that it's you know it's price effectiveness is going down because you know you've paid for it already right and on, on a really on a yearly basis the value of electricity is just less you know cost is lesser and lesser so it's attractive but again it's also not easy because you know there's a huge amount of capital that's required to for instance uh, segregate feeders that will supply only to agricultural uh, consumers. Uh, feeder segregation is something that has been underway in many states, but it's not universal in any case. So it's a good solution for places where the f- segregation has happened. Uh, there are, for instance, schemes that look at uh, 
farmers installing you know solar panels on their uh, on their fields supplying the surplus back to the grid right uh, over and above whatever they consume and then they get remunerated for it right then there are schemes which have basically looked at standalone electrification of pumps again not the most successful of ones but even that is available you have a solar panel that basically caters to the needs of one particular pump instead of you know uh, uh, something that's connected to a grid and that again you know absolves the grid of supplying to that particular pump um farmers are not easily taken to this because again the expectation is that you know i want electricity whenever i need it it's not that they're getting it today but the fact that there is a government that's responsible for supplying it and it's not you know uh, being outsourced to a solar panel that may or may not function 5 years after installation is giving them jitters so uh, you know and that's one of the reasons why obviously the uptake is not that rapid but um, i think it's just a matter of time before they see that the reliability is more uh that they are able to sort of address their own challenges better right and that the value that they're getting uh the discom as well as the farmer and i'm hoping there is a mechanism for sharing this value in some way right which is obviously there the government is putting up the upfront capital will eventually mean that a lot more farmers start relying on this decentralized supply and we will eventually be able to break this vicious cycle of you know loss making when it comes to supplying to agriculture which is unaccounted which then results in poorer service elsewhere which means less consumers are paying for it you know as i said it's a it's a kind of like a downward spiral and hopefully it will manage to break it in the coming decade is the expectation yeah. so since we are on the subject of solar um uh, if i could just take a quick aside and sort of talk about uh, where things stand with respect to solar uh, the solar industry and energy storage uh, because that's clearly where the future is headed uh, we have a problem in india right now in the sense that the manufacturing of solar pvs is extremely capital intensive requires a modicum of skilled labor and a large capital investment and these are clearly impediments uh, one could argue that there are similar impediments to energy storage battery manufacturing also a uh, lack of unavailability of raw materials again large capital investment and such uh where do you see the future of uh solar and uh battery manufacturing in uh with, with in light of these problems right you know i think the um the, as you know there have been two rounds of pli scheme for solar pv that have already been you know conducted and successfully so and the expectation is you know the pli you know for those listeners who are not aware of it is the uh, is the production linked incentive scheme which the government rolled out for multiple sectors of the economy right at a cost of about 145000 crore over many years of course and specifically the solar pv one i think you know was uh, fairly oversubscribed right both the rounds and we have you know potentially um anywhere north of 35 gigawatt worth of capacity where from end to end right right from uh, you know uh, the silicon ingots to the module uh potentially being manufactured in india in the next 5 to 6 years right we could potentially have north of 35 gigawatts of manufacturing capacity uh, which is basically end to end uh that's phenomenal uh you know we're looking at you know investments that would you know possibly be of the order of you know, tens of billions that will have to come from uh, the private sector being incentivized through this money that the government of india is providing basically which is for every watt of you know cell manufactured you basically get you know a certain share of the cost of that right maybe a 10 to 15% uh, incentive from the government and of course then they get the market price as well and this is incentivized a lot of companies to come forward and put this up so it is well underway it's well underway 
the challenge though is this which is that while manufacturing plans are afoot there is this tentativeness with regard to how much is india able to absorb of new new renewable energy in the economy so for instance you know india had a target and this was not part of our formal commitment under the unfccc you know whether it's the ndcs or anything else of 500 gigawatt of non fossil capacity it was 50% of you know the, the commitment is 50% of our installed capacity base in 2030 would be non fossil uh internally the understanding was it 500 gigawatt would at least be there but then slowly you know we are sort of beginning to doubt whether we have the wherewithal to be able to install at a pace which will get us to 500 gigawatts by 2030 which is why it's not part of any formal commitments and that is a slight problem because you know unless the industry has a certainty that you know the government is going to drive installation at that kind of pace will the committed investments actually happen is a question there is an expectation of course uh, from the global audience that uh, because of the china plus 1 uh, strategy right where everybody wants to have a a plan b in the event china goes rogue and you know and things uh, you know deteriorate when it comes to you know geopolitical tensions between the powers that be they should have an alternative source of supply for some of these and india is one such market which is already being tapped by for instance us us developers Japan, European developers. So everybody certainly wants a way out. So there is a business case for a certain amount of capacity to supply to these markets at a premium. But obviously, you know, it may not be nearly as big as what the domestic market might have to offer because of the sheer scale of India's ambition. So unless there is clarity in India's ambitions, you know, and what the domestic industry is willing to do, you may not find that you know manufacturing may take hold in the way that the PLI scheme is intended to, or at the pace at which we need to get our final gigawatt target. Now that said, the reason why the domestic industry is not able to give that confidence, which is the domestic, the developers, is because they are all looking for people to say, you know what, I will buy the power from you. You put in a solar power plant, right? And somebody has to say, I will buy the power from you. Now the challenge is, power from a solar plant is intermittent. because intermittent in the sense that you know it's available of course only 8 to 9 hours a day but even in those 8 to 9 hours you know you may have a cloudy day you may have a rainy day right so it doesn't guarantee you supply every day of the year for those 8 hours but more importantly you know outside of those 8 hours what are you going to do right because power demand is there very much outside of those hours so as you go to a system that's increasingly intermittent you want some assurances that uh, the supply will continue to come even when the sun is not shining and that inherently then relies on an oversized solar system that will generate more than what is required during the day will store that electricity in a battery and that battery will basically supply to the grid as and when it wants it evening night you know late early morning whatever it might be now this is where the catch is that because we are all used to the system which is you know at our control which is a coal based power plant or a gas based power plant or a hydro power plant or a nuclear power plant, to a lesser extent but nevertheless it is still very much under our control the system operators and the utilities and everybody today is like yeah but you know when a, when your source of energy is not in your control what do you do how do you commit to you know delivering uh, at any time and the cost of that technology is high so when you look at you know electricity that is generated from solar and then pushed through a battery and then you supply it right 
uh, that can be pricey, which is why you have what is called these round-the-clock bids today, which you know, which can potentially provide electricity at at rates that are now competitive with uh, coal. For instance, a newly built coal-fired power plant, uh, or a, let's say the ones that are being planned today, planned not under construction, could be providing electricity at a cost of anywhere between you know four point six to five rupees a kilowatt hour. And the most recent tender for a battery plus storage system, battery plus solar system, was actually at four point five plus, slightly over, which means that it can actually compete. But the thing is. Everybody's like, yeah, but who's going to provide, who's going to uh, offtake that? Who's going to buy it? And that is the, you know, that's kind of like a chicken and the egg, right? This is a growing economy where there's going to be huge amounts of demand for power. But the problem is your distribution companies are not able to figure out who's going to pay for that power, right? Where is that pathway for me to, you know, where's that economic growth prospect that will allow for all these millions of households who've come into the power grid in recent years to earn a living and to be able to generate revenues, you know, money that will allow for payment of additional electricity. So it, it's like, you know, it feels like the utilities don't understand the India growth story, that electricity is fundamental to the India growth story. And if you as a utility are like, I don't know who's going to buy power and who's going to pay for it, you're fundamentally not believing in the India growth story. And this dissonance is because of the experience that they've had over the many decades where, you know, yes, there have been lofty claims around demand, materializing, etc. But none of that has actually resulted in their financial position changing. So if you have to continue supplying higher amounts of electricity while you continue to hemorrhage money, you know, on a per unit basis, even if that were to remain constant, that's not a good proposition. Because even though they're not profit-making entities, they still need to raise capital out there. And there's a lot of pressure on the people who operate them to, you know, at least not lose money in the in the way they are today. So unless we're able to kind of break that expect, you know, that sort of vicious cycle that we've we've described earlier, you will always find this position where everybody wants to install capacity, but nobody wants to buy the electricity because there is no belief that you can actually make money or return, you know, the recoup the money that you spend in buying the electricity. And this can only change when you know there is a full value of electricity that is embedded in every consumer's decision, right? Whether it's a poor household that is looking to you know have electricity for having its children study, you know, under light, you know, so that they can go to school, etc. Or a farmer who's looking to find value for his produce, right? Or, you know, a rural enterprise is looking to, you know, do some value add on agricultural produce or whatever local, you know, skill that exists to be able to sell that elsewhere. If none of these people are able to figure out that electricity is critical to my future prospects and they all keep thinking that, you know, electricity needs to be free because, you know, I can't guarantee that there will be livelihood opportunities beyond, you know, immediate consumption of electricity, then we are going to be stuck here. So this does rely on this systemic change in expectation of what electricity does for you. Right. And uh, that needs to, that needs to come with, I think a lot of conditioning. Uh, there needs to be exposure to the kind of opportunities, especially in the cases, for instance, like you no know, rural livelihoods and farmers willing to pay for it. Right. And all of that. Uh, it's, it's going to take some time. Right. I think, you know, we've tried to kind of push it from the supply side, but I think now the demand side needs to gear up so that, it says, okay, I will pay for the supply you're giving me, which will then give confidence to utilities to go ahead and procure power, right? Or at least, you know, whether it's from the market or from long-term agreements is a different thing. And that will then, you know, kickstart this industry. So long to answer your question, you know, in, in, in a few words, absolutely, there is indeed a future for, for manufacturing of solar PV and batteries in the country. 
the materials are not so much a constraint today. But that said, India is going to be a very, very small player in the battery manufacturing space by the end of this decade. You know, our annual requirement is already such a small fraction of what the global capacity is that, you know, what we will end up having by 2030 is a minuscule portion of the global supply chains. So I think there is, you know, it's not like we're competing at the scale at which, you know, we have to really worry about whether we will get access to any of the minerals. It can become a problem if we were to really scale up our ambitions. But that said, it's, it's, that's a problem not just for India. It's a problem for the world. Because at the, at, the, at the global level, you don't want a concentration of everything. Which has unfortunately been the case because, you know, of you know, the elephant in the room is China, right? They've got the, they've taken a head start in pretty much every sector. Even in a sector like automobile, where, you know, India was probably leaps and bounds ahead when it comes to the conventional vehicles. China is now the lead, one of the leading manufacturers of electric vehicles, right? Just the new tech and they've sort of surged ahead. So because of this, there is a there is a feeling that, you know, ultimately there will be a squeezing of supply on a lot of these things because it's all going to one market. If I had a substantial plan, because ultimately that's the thing that we need to remember, which is, you know, I was looking at these numbers. Today, the coal, just, you know, digging coal out of the ground is getting India close to about, you know, um, 2 lakh crore a year in revenues to the railways and putting out that much money into the economy. Solar PV today is probably around 7,500 crore. Okay. Batteries, you know, you can imagine, you know, obviously much lesser. So they have a long way to catch up, which means that the value addition that, you know, these new technologies need to provide for those to become mainstream and for actors to think that, hey, this is a source of economic growth for me. They have to substantially grow. Until then, everybody is going to be thinking of those as being in the margin. And that, you know, what I need to predominantly promote and what I need to continuously ensure that I don't drop the ball is this big system that I have. So as a result, you know, there is this continued plans for more coal-based power, right? All of that is happening because there is a huge economic benefit from there because literally it's money that's under your feet, right? Which is not the case with solar PV or with batteries because we are today procuring a bunch of things from outside, adding a little bit of value and selling it. Even in the case where it fully were to become in domestic, domestic, the value chain through the PLI scheme, for instance, we anticipate that the value add maybe to the tune of about 75,000 crore in another five years. Coal is already at 2 lakh crore. Right? So you can imagine, you can imagine that, you know, there are these challenges the government of India is going through and the actors are going through. And this is a challenge for any economy that has fossil fuels embedded at some level into its, you know, overall energy mix, you know, whether it's energy security, whether it's, you know, revenue security for governments, you know, provincial or the center, these things need to be sort of factored in when you make this decision to transition. But the reality is, uh, Shayud, that whether it's, it's not for climate change, we should not be looking at this as acting for climate change. We should be looking at this as what is the best way in which we can give the lowest cost electricity to our consumers? Because as I said, for a growing economy, electricity is the you know, is the food that will enable it to grow. Is the primary input. Because that's what the economy is today. The economy is running, I mean, while electricity in the total final energy consumption, as it's called, right, is only about 18% in India, which means, of course, oil and coal and, you know, and end uses is big. But we're increasingly looking at a world where more and more things are electric. Whether it's your cars, whether it's industries, whether it is, you know, what you consume at home, right? If that is going to be the future, 
you've got to provide it more and more of it. And the good part is converting a lot of things to electricity means you're addressing the challenges of emissions that happen close to where people are living. Right? Because ultimately, air pollution, which is, as you know, one of the biggest challenges that face India today, here and now, is primarily caused by the use of fossil fuels. So if not for climate change, we should be thinking about a highly electrified economy where the emissions close to where people are living and, you know, in their households, you know, where they're commuting in the offices and in the public spaces they are in should be as little as possible. And that alone has such a phenomenal, you know, you know, um, what do you call it? Positive benefit of avoided mortality, avoided disease burden that it, it rivals, for instance, many other, you know, child development programs that we might have. That is the burden of air pollution today. So I'd say, you know, there's a big reason for us to act, to be able to bring in these new technologies that wean us away from the, from coal. While we know that coal definitely is important today because that is what we have. We've got to actively figure out how do we decrease the cost of electricity that we provide our consumers with? Because let's be very clear. India has one of the most expensive electricity prices in the world on a purchasing power parity basis. Right? Right? Which means that, of course, for households, etc., it's subsidized and whatnot, but the problem is it's costing the economy. Right? And ultimately, if you don't grow the pie, you can't keep dividing the pie, you know, through populist measures because your pie is not growing. You know, and then, you know, you have a case of, you know, we're just wearing down the economy. We'll be consuming a lot of stuff, but we're not producing enough. So you've got to grow the economic pie. And for this, electricity for productive activity has to be cheaper. And cheaper electricity today, as we see it, is most certainly not from coal necessarily. There are many other considerations for coal to be providing it, but coal is not necessarily the most cost effective. But it is an option that's available to India. The financing for it is you no know, is available in India. The technical ability to extract energy from there is available in India. And for the, all of these reasons, we see comfort in it. But if you were to look at the environmental fallouts, forget climate change, we should really be looking at moving away from it. And that I think will have positive implications for distribution companies. Right? It'll have positive implications for consumers who will have potentially not growing electricity prices, but at least stable electricity prices so that they're able to then better pay for the services that they consume, which will then improve, mean that the utilities are able to invest in augmenting the distribution system, which is decrepit in many parts of the country. Right? In many urban areas, for instance, you know, you know, it's aging infrastructure, right? It's probably 30 years old, 40 years old, you know, frequent outages. You know, if you live in a, you know, in a dense pocket in Delhi, you might find, you know, on a hot summer day or a night, you might find outages because the transformer is not able to handle it. It needs more investment, right? So all of this will happen. So there is definitely like a positive cycle that we develop the moment the cost of electricity to the utilities goes down. And today, unfortunately, a con our conventional sources is not delivering that. RE plus storage can, but it needs to be facilitated through a lot of investment that's upfront. And for that, I think we need to think slightly beyond tomorrow. We need to think, think 10 years from now. We need to ensure that that industry and the value add that we expect from it will be captured through domestic entity. Otherwise, I think we will certainly be stuck in this by thinking, you know what, hey, this is not an industry that India is supporting. We should take this transition slower. So uh, sticking with the theme of the future and uh, and also connecting to the issue that you highlighted just a, a while earlier about uh, suppliers not having confidence that there will be enough demand. 
uh, we could at this point talk about uh, what the future of household demand in the electricity sector looks like. Um, uh, and uh, to tie this in, we could discuss about the smart uh, meter survey that was done uh, because it talks a lot about what where household demand comes from, where most of the demand comes from, how households can be uh, segregated on the basis of low demand versus high demand, and what it tells us about the future. Uh, and uh, so, as you have, uh, as was pointed out in the report, one of the key uh, sources of demand of electricity is the use of appliances. So, as I said, you know, um, you know, today in the Indian economy, roughly about a quarter of the electricity is going to households, right? As we kind of become like an economy, which is much like the US or the EU, it's the services sector, it's households, you know, there is a lot more, you know, appliances, there's cooling requirement. All of this means that a larger share of our consumption is going to happen in households. And unfortunately today, it is a part of the economy that's not really contributing to uh, the recovery of the cost of the distribution company experiences. And as a result, we need mechanisms by way by which we, first of all, make this consumption within households the most efficient. And the way to do that is by basically getting consumers to get a sense of what are they spending money on, their electricity on, and is there a better way to get value for the money that they will spend in the future. And for this, you need information that will actually drive their decision making. And this information will come from smart meters. Uh, you know, in a in a in a situation where you know, like we are in today, where smart meters are kind of being looked at to, you know, decrease theft and loss of you know, economic uh, value for the utility. The future is really where consumers make a more informed choice around when to consume, how much to consume, and at what price to consume, right? And uh, because, you know, effectively, it's a communicating meter in, to the extent that you enable it, to the extent that it's integrated with, you know, the various appliances that you use. Sounds very futuristic, right? Uh, running your washing machine at a time when the prices are low, or switching off your, you know, refrigerator at a time when the prices are super high, but then, you know, things are not going to go bad in your refrigerator because you know, it has that inherent, you know, heat or the the, the 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 cooling that's been preserved within it. Or switching on your air conditioner at a time of day when, you know, it's actually sort of, you know, cool, I mean, the prices are low and, you know, sort of shutting it off for that brief period when it's possibly again spiking because, you know, it's 15 minute, one hour spikes that potentially can make the difference for the, for the sector as a whole. And when millions of households potentially give up their consumption because the prices are touching a certain level, you can actually free up resources for the rest of the economy. So there is a role for smart meters to play beyond just helping the utility identify, you know, who's consumed at what time and, you know, and when to, you know, whether they are evading uh, paying for it, etc. It's really about also the future of the system where you can synchronize, right, what consumers want and, you know, with what you're able to provide. And if there is a gap, you know, get consumers to say, you know what, I'm willing to not consume at this particular hour, right? Or willing to consume at this particular hour because the prices are lower. And uh, as a result, you know, you bring down your overall, uh, the size of the system. You know, you're, you're kind of doing this in a way that is not burdening the system. That's, you know, this is called demand side management or you know, as it's called, right? Demand uh, response as it's called, right? More uh, uh, recently. And uh, this is something that will require yeah, 250 million households in India to be connected to, you know, this, this, you know, this, the web, so to say, where they're constantly transmitting information. But more importantly, you will require a system that's able to assimilate all this information, provide insights to consumers, provide insights to uh, distribution utilities, um, 
And, you know, it's a very different system from what we have today, where you don't have this kind of interaction between the utility and the consumer. You don't have a utility that's necessarily primed to sort of look at that kind of data. So all of this, as I said, is futuristic, but at the same time, we need to take baby steps towards ensuring that the capabilities at every level are built in for us to leverage what technology can provide us. Right? Uh, you know, we can certainly do it the old school way, right? Where there are, you know, it's in a very planned system, right? Where you go in and report, you know, every day what appliances you are kind of consuming. There used to be, you know, back in the day, there used to be, you know, to help plan for a local area, you had to actually go and report to your uh, local authority that, you know, I've bought a refrigerator in my house. You know, I've got an additional XYZ appliance, you know, possibly through the 70s and 80s, but not a feasible situation today, right? Because of the rate at which appliance penetration is happening. So you need to do this in a smart way. And this is one of them. And this will also ensure then that there is a clear direction to the utility saying, you know what, this is how my consumption is going to go increase in a particular area. I need to either use these demand side measures to incentivize them to consume less or improve the efficiency of appliances in a particular area because, you know, currently they are not as efficient as they are in any other or augment the supply that actually goes into these, which means, you know, you'll have to actually literally provide more wires that go in from, you know, the local substation into this particular distribution transformers, which will require, you know, civil labor or labor or whatnot. It's cost effect. It's, it's, it, it costs a lot of money, which will have to be then a burden on the system. So you make all of these different trade-offs. Today, all of these decisions are made without the full knowledge of what that future will look like. Smart meters can certainly enable us a glimpse into what that future will look like because you're already getting real-time information of how people are are sort of, you know, um, moving along that uh, that path that, you know, you anticipate them to, you know, as economic growth happens in the various households. And that's really what uh, we think the, the future of smart meters is, right? Today, unfortunately, as I said, it's being used to primarily see, you know, who do who is who is basically escaping this payment net, right? Uh, is there 30-minute consumption data when I add it up? Is it coming up to, you know, a number that I anticipate it to be, Right. Because it's being transmitted. There's no question of tampering, you know, at the month end and whatnot. It's being sent in regularly. And suddenly one day you find that, you know, the data is not coming through. You know what have they consumed on a daily basis so that you can penalize them. But that's a very small use case, right? And uh, that's the use case which is being used to currently at least promote them today because recovery of money is also an important part. But the value that they bring is many fold the value of, you know, just billing the consumers. And in any case, it's an overkill just to bill consumers to have smart meters. You know, I think there are low-tech solutions just to, you know, I think there's no shortage of manpower today and there's no shortage of technology to enable data collection to happen, especially, you know, monthly metering, you don't need that, right? You can send a, you can have these technologies where there is a data transmitter and the meter and you can have a vehicle that goes through the street that can that can collect that data even as it's moving through, right? From a local RF mesh or whatever it might be. But why go for a smart meter in every household which is communicating, you know, every... 15 minutes with some utility to consume, con to provide that data, which then becomes a data management challenge. So to solve the billing issue, you don't need smart meters. But what to really make the system ready for the future, smart meters certainly will play a big important role. I see. Uh, so I think the report also discusses uh, very briefly about some of the ways uh, in which smart meters are being deployed. So there's like a savings linked more, uh, uh, leasing model and there's a savings linked model. Um, uh, 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 could you uh, tell us about uh, a little bit about the deployment strategies that the government is considering? I mean, the 
of course you know so you, you for you, you're talking about savings links model for uh, appliances or you're talking about smart meters uh smart meters sorry see yeah so you know see ultimately you know whatever model it is the challenge is that today the distribution company needs to pay more per consumer or spend more money per consumer to have a smart meter because it is additional investment now would the utility want to go ahead and spend you know um 3500 rupees per household to enable this probably not so they will now have to go and look at a model where they are basically you know amortizing that cost onto a monthly plan which says that you know what i'm going to pay you 60 rupees or 70 rupees a month per consumer for the next uh 7 or 8 years or whatever it might be right the period or perhaps it's a perpetual payment uh to enable you to basically provide the data and the insights etc <clears throat> and this is a at least you are effectively basically taking the product you are paying for the service that is providing on a monthly basis now alternatively you could say you know what i'm going to pay you for effectively helping me bring down right my losses and the amount of money that you're basically saving me on account of the deployment of the smart meter so you have a baseline and you say that the deployment must result in you know uh, revenue cost savings or revenue save uh, or revenue augmentation of so much and then you basically get a certain cut of it so irrespective the ultimate thing as i said today is the utility is seeing it as a way of increasing its revenue net and the problem is it can't pay upfront for any of these things because it just doesn't have the capacity to because you can't suddenly front load your consumers with that kind of money right even if you're financing it you can't front load it onto your consumers so it has to be you know brought on slowly and uh, the distribution company and the regulator could always argue why do you want to spend more money to recover right i'm already giving you you know already the resources that you need you're telling me you want to spend another 80 rupees per person to be able to recover his dues i'm sorry i don't think i can grant you that so there is a bit of a tiff between the regulator and the utility as well saying you know what what is the guarantee that you know that after spending this you will get it back and why should i basically you know allow this because i'm giving you all the allowances to you know, for collection efficiency etc is already provided so if you can't perform at this level then what are you doing so to address these challenges you know you've come up with these business models but um, increasingly as i said this rds scheme which basically is a 3 lakh crore scheme between center and state government nearly a third of it coming from uh, central government contributions incentivizes more and more deployment of smart meters so it's almost as if it's a fait accompli you know it doesn't matter what the business model is you're basically saying that this is the future there are too many loopholes in the way the current metering happens and the government of india after you know in, in all its wisdom after having seen you know every trick in the book that the indian consumer throws at them has come up with a solution that you know this is the only way i can prevent you from going out of my revenue net right i monitor you closely you will pay for it and that's the way i'm going to solve for this so it's a very hard technology driven solution for this problem um we i mean we certainly think there's merit to it because you know we have also seen it play all of these when we go to the field to visit and see the innovative ways in which people kind of you know uh you know hook on to the electricity cables without having to you know uh, pay for it uh, bypassing the meters tampering with the meters you know uh, acting in collusion with the meter readers you know to basically not pay the bill so there's enough avenues in between 
you know the the consumer and the utility for you know the dr- ball to be dropped as in the money to basically disappear and you know the government feels that this is a good way to sort of stop that certainly is one but it also tells you of that as i said these are all forced solutions these are not solutions that the people are willing to accept uh you know there is they spread canard about this you know in uh, in new local newspapers local whatsapp groups for instance among community members will tell you don't allow smart meters in your household you know it increases the bill for you because they control it from the outside an incident that happened in the state of uh, you know in i think in mathura for instance um where a close to a lakh consumers were left without electricity you know on a on a key evening i forget what date it was whether it was holy or whether it was one such celebration where i think accidentally or perhaps you know there was you know some hidden agenda to, of somebody to make it look like you know smart meters are detrimental they cut off supply to uh, 1 lakh consumers and that resulted in a significant backlash where consumers was like you know what we've paid our bills you know why are you cutting off our supply so all of these you know different actors are there you know who some who've got vested interests in the current system right somebody who's currently making money under the table so to say right because of the current system possibly is seeing his revenues being uh, watered away so he he or she wants to you know do what they did so there are a range of actors who want the existing you know inefficiencies because somebody is making money clearly on right and that's what we need to overcome and i think for deployment of smart meters one of the things is there has to be an active campaign that the utility needs to run where they educate the consumers of the benefits they tell them of you know in how many different ways can the utility improve its supply to them and ensure that there is some sort of like a new social norm that that sort of you know prevails over and above any other factors that might you know be brought into the narrative that you've got to pay you know if you don't pay you become sort of like somebody who's a bit of a pariah right you're not paying for electricity right today do we even see somebody who doesn't pay for the electricity or separate their waste at home are they seen as outcasts they're not because that's the norm so how do you create a new social norm that actually gets people to be timely when it comes to the payment of electricity services right uh much like you know be good civic uh you know civic minded folk really right and um, we're hoping that you know unless not hoping i think we've also developed a standard operating protocol to ensure that the utility consu- communicates with the consumers in a way that gets them to sort of fall in line uh, and not sort of you know be detractors you know and spread the wrong message among the public that then causes you know bigger challenges when it comes to the broader roll out of it let's see I see. I see. Um, so, uh, several interesting points to discuss here, um, uh, but I'd just like to close our discussion of smart meters with one uh, fact that I found really interesting in the report, which discusses the pattern of power usage uh, as uh, that the smart meters found, and uh, it. Uh, so, there's the clear demarcation between like households that are low power users below 200 kilowatt hours. and households that are above that figure and uh, the low power users uh, see a very constant band of power usage as opposed to the high power users and uh, i thought that was really informative for like anybody trying to decide to supply to power to the sector so i was wondering if like you could just talk about the implications of those yeah i mean it's a you know i think you know it's a bit of a no brainer right that electricity that households that basically have heavy duty appliances primarily you know in the indian context where we are in a tropical environment it's cooling more so than heating that uh, really prevails so much of the year 
households that have an air conditioner are going to be head and shoulders above the uh, demand that uh, non air conditioned household is going to see and that is what we also saw um you know and you you know you talked about the numbers right where the consumption could be anywhere north of you know 200 uh, significantly higher than that ranging from 200 to 1000 whereas the others were predominantly within 200 units a month and that is primarily driven by you know the increasing um, aspirations right everybody wants to sort of obviously live in a comfortable setting which means that you know you want to use an air conditioner for as many hours as your wallet will afford you to uh, you know so we found that for instance an average household is using it for 5 and a half hours right <coughs> for instance you know in a city like delhi you know you and i during the summer probably switch on our air conditioners at but i don't know 9:30 10 maybe right in the bedroom if it's a if it's a split air conditioner or a window ac not a centralized system and we might run it through till i don't know 4:30 5 in the morning right um, maybe some people uh, put in a 8 hour timer there right that maybe cut it slightly before but otherwise you know in a typical household it's you know when you're asleep right uh, you want to sleep in reasonable comfort you know when the mosquito is not biting you or whatever uh, whereas that number is 5 and a half hours so you can clearly see that there is that notion that you know i can't use it for the entire night right and possibly the five and a half hours also split between a little bit of daytime usage and nighttime usage right you know in the daytime who is there possibly at a 3 pm when the temperature is the highest they may want to get a little bit of reprieve so they may use it then and then a little bit of usage in the night so that at least when you're going to sleep you know you're sleeping in comfort but then once you're in deep sleep possibly you know it doesn't affect you as much so you know you are willing to take a bit of an increase in temperature so it's still a commodity that is being used in a rationed manner i mean an air conditioner and i'm saying you know the use of the air conditioner uh so there is a long way to go right because everybody has the right to uh you know experience comfort you know uh, within the confines in their home and of course notwithstanding their ability to you know pay for it um but um and we know that more and more people will find the ways to pay for it or for that matter it may become come to a point where people will say you know what this is as important as you know water is to my existence because temperatures are going to become that high you know you're going to become you know i i've heard of stories where uh, people for instance in poorer uh, sections of society for instance popping pills to be able to sleep in the night because it's just so oppressive the weather right in you know in certain humid conditions whether it's in the outskirts of mumbai or chennai or kolkata and that's the reality and it's a tragedy that you know uh, those consumers have to kind of take those drastic uh, choices to be able to get a good night sleep while there are of course solutions that rely on you know cool roofs and better design of buildings so that you know they're not retaining heat those are you know more uh, you know it's kind of upturning the system you know it's not a simple fix like installing an air conditioner and going with it as much as you know there is a benefit to kind of looking at a design based solution to it which is long term and not a knee jerk solution which is like you know here take more energy and consume more energy and you will cool yourself but that is the immediate solution that bulk of the people living in households today are going to think about maybe somebody who's building a new house for himself or herself might say that you know i want to build it in such a way that you know i'm exposing myself less to the uh, vagaries of climate and you know and electricity availability and you know making it cool by design but a bulk of people are you know going to look at solutions for the households they live in today most of them are not you know energy efficient when it comes to the building envelope right and we saw that as well that was another assessment that we actually did in terms of you know houses that were designed to basically you know face the right directions right in terms of the heat load that they were facing what was it what did uh, the electricity usage tell about 
the implication of their household's layout vis-a-vis their consumption. And we clearly find signs that households that are not designed well and do not, that do not have the right alignment uh, when it comes to, you know, the way it, uh, you know, sort of avoids the sun's rays do end up seeing a higher thermal load. So it is intricately linked to a range of things, but ultimately it's about whether you're able to stomach the impact in your pocket. If you're able to, you will use it. If you're not, you won't. And and uh, in a world where the temperature rise is likely to be, you know, as I said, on average two degrees, but, you know, in certain pockets and in certain days, it may be as high as six or seven degrees, as we've seen, you know, uh, through 2023 in different parts of the globe. I mean, that's really oppressive. Uh, as they say, right, if the wet bulb temperature were to go beyond 35 degrees centigrade, right, the combination of humidity and temperature, the human body's ability to sweat out and actually uh, cool yourself is compromised. And in fact, it becomes, it's impossible to. So when we're looking at serious mortality, there is no question but to allow for the recognition to happen, uh, Shayud. So it will become a mandatory service. We may end up having, you know, public spaces which offer cooling, uh, for instance, to the people if we really care about our population. Uh, and in that scenario, we have to really think about how do we manage electricity demand. Yeah, and um, you know that's, that future is perhaps not too far away. But let's hope that you know we leave ourselves some breathing room, uh, financial as well as technical, to be able to address that future. Uh, I, I think we've certainly made strides, but there's a lot to be done because it's a highly iniquitous situation that we face today where I think the rich have the resources to be able to kind of pull together any supply-side solution that they need to be able to satisfy their their requirement, whereas uh, a lot of the poor do not have access to that. So, uh, yeah. Um, thank you very much, Mr. Ganeshan. Um, this was all quite uh, helpful. And uh, there were several aspects of this that I did not really uh, encounter uh, before. And so thank you for that. Um, I would just like to say, uh, if I, I'd just like to invite you to make any remarks on anything related to this that uh, you would like to focus on or stress on or uh, that hasn't come up yet. You know, it's a uh, looking at looking 20 years into the future. Um, I think what we really need to think about is it's not about. Um, let me let me rephrase that. Looking into the future, I think our objective must be how do we provide a higher standard of living to the population that we support in a way that is, you know, least detrimental to the environment that we live in. And more importantly, is within the affordability of a large part of the population. And we must choose that option to be able to supply electricity to them. And that will require a range of things to happen right from the generation of electricity to the way we supply it. And to the way people consume it. And uh, each one of these systems today, you know, is riddled with its share of, you know, legacy issues, whether it is, you know, distorted energy prices for some consumers, to distorted incentives to public sector undertakings to continue doing certain things the way they do, to the legacy systems that we have in between, uh, you know, between the generator and the consumers of power, uh, you know, in the way they supply electricity and in the way they engage with the consumer. So. It requires a wholesale transformation. So it's not that, you know, tomorrow renewable energy is going to alleviate our problems. Or for that matter, you know, coal is going to make our problems worse. There are lots of things in the value chain to make things better or worse. Some of these are, of course, low-hanging fruits, which we should tap into. Uh, And some of these are sort of, you know, 
things that we really don't have too much control over. For instance, whether you know we will end up being dependent on coal for the rest of the decade is almost a fait accompli. We will, because we don't have an alternative that's scaling up fast enough. So let's not you know look at what the West is telling us today and saying you know you need to stop coal right now. No, that's your responsibility, right? You've you know you've had a your share of uh, your contributions. We need to take care of me here and now. But then let's ensure we're not losing sight of where we want to be twenty years from now. And I think the if policymakers are able to sort of look at that 20 year future and not just what's ahead of them today and tomorrow and make their decisions based on where we should be in the 20 years time frame i think we will set right a lot of things not easily far easier said than done because we know that everybody operates with various different cycles there's a bureaucrat cycle there's a political cycle right uh, there's an economic cycle on top of all of that uh, notwithstanding all of these uh, i just hope we have the wherewithal to be able to look far, further in because we have the view of what the future is going to look like a climate change future a future where there is much bigger health burden associated with our current population on account of the environmental pressures that we are subjected to uh keeping all those in mind uh, taking a decision that kind of keeps our population in the best possible shape in our 2050 or a 2070 will i think result in the best outcomes for us i see i see um thank you again mr ganeshan for taking the time out to Thank you Shayu. Thank you for having me on this. I really appreciated the conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Interpreting India. Stay tuned for our upcoming episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. To stay updated on our research and team, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. For in-depth insights, visit us at carnegieindia.org. See you next time.